Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I'm going to talk to you from the 13th chapter, the story of Abram and Lot going their separate ways. I'll try and give you a little moral conclusion from that, how it applies to us. The 14th chapter, Lot becomes a prisoner of war. Abram goes to his rescue. There'll be something interesting there. Chapter 15 is about God's covenant with Abram. So we've got like, the title of my sermon is the trilogy plus one, because really I've got three mini sermons here, and they do connect together because it's all progressively the life of Abram. But then there's a fourth point, the trilogy plus one, because I just wanted to make a couple of closing comments about the ratifying of the covenant. So here we go. The first one I'm going to tip my hand on as we talk about this this story is obstacles in your life need to go. I'm not going to read the 13th and the 14th and the 15th chapter. I had toyed with the idea of making you stand while I read the scripture but I thought there might be a mutiny if I did that. But nevertheless, I will familiarize you with the content of each chapter, and we will go from there. So as the herds and the families of Abram and Lot prosper and grow, it becomes more difficult for them to travel together because the places they would stop to water their livestock was not always enough to handle the the growing, swelling caravan. This caused some tension between Abram's people and Lot's people, and the shepherds trying to get the, uh, the herds watered would bicker with one another, and some strife, some contention was arising. So Abram and Lot come together, and they said, it's not so good of an idea for us to continue to travel as one huge unit. And Abram makes a very generous offer to his nephew Lot. He says, I'll tell you what, you will have pick and choice which direction you want to go. I'll let you go that direction. I'll choose another direction. I'll stay out of your way. Then there will be plenty of room, I'm sure, wherever you stop to take care of the needs of your herds and your people, and, and uh, everything will be much better like that. So uh, this is the famous story of Lot looking over the well-watered plains, and he decided that looks like the best choice. I'm always intrigued by this because Abram had the courtesy to give him first pick and choice, and then Lot didn't seem to hesitate and reciprocate with any kind of courtesy or grace and saying, well, since you gave me the first choice, then I'll, I'll take maybe the lesser choice and defer to you. But Lot's all over this. He said, you give me first choice, I'm going to take the best one. I, I don't think as much about Lot as I do Abram and his 
mercy and his grace in extending that to him. But anyway, at this point in Sunday school class, we usually moralize about Lot being so intrigued about the, the, the beauty of it and it's catching his eye and making this choice. And, and then, of course, as you know, he landed in a place where there were cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. Things did not go well for him as he settled there. And we go back to this choice and we try to make some moral lesson out of don't always choose what's best. Well, what kind of a moral choice is that? You really want to go through your life making the worst choice and thinking that that's what God wants for you. So that's really not the lesson we can learn for this, even though it didn't turn out well for Lot. But that's not something that can be applied uh, systematically and consistently in our life. He just, he just thought that, that it's, it's a good place to water my animals. I'll go there. There's, there's something else playing behind this besides what I had just mentioned, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. So they, they have this separating of ways, and Abram takes second choice, what's left over, and Lot chose a path that ultimately led him out of the promised land. Now, you understand what is happening here and what God is directing here is Lot and Abram come in to the inherited promised land. And God has promised this to Abram, but Lot's a relative. So what is developing in this family situation is uh, Abram uh, and his people are essentially going to inherit the promised land, Canaan, right? And you can foresee that years down the road, if Lot traveled with him and was a part of him, there's the potential of having a family feud. Now, without spending a lot of time on it or getting into your business, how many of you know that when there's an inheritance involved, how sticky that can get for families? Everything's fine until mom and dad die and then all of this has to be divided up and then all this junk comes out that never came out before brothers and sisters at each other and if you've been through this and your family didn't have any struggles whatsoever you are blessed beyond measure because it really gets nasty I don't know why I don't know why that happens but you can see the potential of years down the road generations down the road the descendants of Lot saying we have as much right to this land as the descendants of Abraham does. So God foresaw what was coming, and in his wisdom, he allowed for a dividing of these camps as Lot took his people and went out of the promised land. There would be no question in future generations who Canaan belonged to, the descendants of Abraham. So there was a clear cut division being made at this point. Now, the most noteworthy aspect of this story is the sovereign hand of God. <clears throat> Lot did not know what he was doing. I mean, he knew what he was doing, but he didn't know how this was playing into the provision that God was, was making. And, and Abram didn't really know that Lot was a potential obstacle to his blessing. Neither one of these were aware of these, these overarching themes. And Abram didn't cleverly devise this plan whereby he threw the dice and gambled that if I give Lot first choice and he 
picks and chooses to go out of the land, it will always go down in the record as saying Abram did not jettison him. He did not boot him out. He did not kick him out. He did not, did not disallow him. Lot made the choice. See, Abram wasn't thinking far enough ahead to make that. But by divine direction and guidance and providence, this was Lot's choice. Who in Lot's family and heirs are ever going to argue, yeah, well, about the time they were ready to inherit the land, Abram got rid of him. Now there's a feud going on. Didn't happen. God is guiding this. The entire story here in the 13th chapter definitely is about watching the hand of God move things around and prepare the way without any human element really or, or uh, intentional human element being involved in designing this. This is the providence of God. This is the kind of revelation that when we think about this, that truly humbles us. Because you have to remember, God is always working in your behalf. He knows what's in your future that you don't even understand what's going to happen. He moves you in ways that sometimes when you look back on where you came from and where you are today, how many of you have in some point said, I'm so glad we're not there anymore. It might have been something that you got moved to a different job and you didn't want to go. I liked that job. I wanted to stay there. But years later, the company folded and you said, God took care of me. He He knew what was coming and I didn't. See, he never gets blindsided by anything. And I've had that happen so many times in my life. As things happened in our life that we did not understand. Most of you do not know the sick, sordid story behind why and how and the circumstances under which we left California. It was just, it was sad. It was just sad. And my wife and I, we reeled from that experience for a long time not understanding why it happened to us the way it happened and the people that we trusted turned on us and we were just we were dumbfounded lord why would you let this happen to us until we find ourselves back in the midwest and ann and i today living just within driving distance of all of our children and all of our grandchildren and we thought and, and we and reflect now on that our children, my, my oldest son went into the Navy, went to uh, the Truman University in Kirksville, Missouri, found a young lady there, married, settled in Kirksville. What if I was in California? Derek uh, got a, uh, an offer from my home church in Chillicothe, Missouri to be their youth pastor, and he loaded up in his U-Haul and took what little bit he had and moved back to Chillicothe, Missouri and met a young lady there and married her that you know. They had children and they're living in the Midwest. What if we were living in California? And so we look here and we say, God, we don't like, we did not enjoy the way in which we were ridden out of town on a rail. But I'm so glad you moved us. And I, I remember uh, a prayer of my wife, and you, you people, I'm going to give you some warning. Don't pray this unless you mean it. 
we were struggling with some things out there and we didn't know what to do. And she prayed and, and, she, and she vowed. She said, we're not leaving unless God forces us out. <laughs> She's been responsible for that move ever since. <laughs> you know, we had determined we're not going to run. But it had to be God to force it. And so Abram and Lot come to the place where God took over and sovereignly designed things for, for the future of his people, not his people plus Lot. Lot wasn't involved. Let's get rid of them. And Abram had to accept the fact that God was designing things in your life. Lot was an obstacle. And people, I'm going to tell you, if you don't have an obstacle in your life today, you may have had an obstacle before and you may in the future. But this is applicable to every one of you yesterday or today or tomorrow. There are obstacles, there are things in your life that are not going to work for you. And God is willing to move those things. You just have to be mature enough not to whine and cry when he does it. You don't see what ha is happening in your life. You don't see what God is providing in your life. You don't see how he's preparing you and taking care of you and guarding you. And you have to be very philosophical about this in your life. When things begin to change, you say, you know what? Maybe God sees something I don't. And I need to trust in him. This is going to be the best thing for me. Obstacles have to go. Let God take care of of moving the things in your life and preparing you for your future. Now, the narrative that briefly follows the adventures of Lot, and as we'll soon learn, uh, they are for a very good reason. Lot finds himself in the middle of a war. This is the 14th chapter. And we wonder why this is thrown into the story and does it have any moral application for us? But it really does connect everything together. Lot made his choice, and he took his people, and they went down uh, out, virtually out of the promised land. And they were happy there. He found some prosperous cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he settled there. And uh, there were these kings, four kings from the east that made this coalition, and they went around uh, conquering cities and kingdoms and these uh, four kings from the east invade the land and five kings formed a coalition to resist them and fend off these marauders these invaders so the invading armies sweep through Canaan and sweep through the land and sweep through the country these coming basically from Mesopotamia Iraq the, the region in there everywhere they go they just decimate the cities, the kingdoms, the kings, they take over everything. It's, it's, just a, it's just a giant piece of machinery that's running over, consuming everything in its path. And five kings, including king of Sodom and king of Gomorrah and king of Salem, they, they form this uh, coalition to try and resist the invaders. And the invading armies uh, go into Sodom and Gomorrah and they, they conquer these, these regions, these towns, and they carry away slaves, prisoners of war, if you will. 
they, they plunder the city, they get the riches, they get all the good stuff, they haul it away. And somebody comes running to Abram and tells them, you know, Lot has been captured in war, he and his family, and they need your help. And this is interesting uh, that Abram, by this time, his family had become so big, so strong, that uh, he he found 318 men from his own clan that he thought would make a good army, a little good small army. And he says, well, we're, we're going to go after Lot. We're going to rescue him. Now, we've got five kings working together, cannot stop this invading army, an army of four nations, four kings. And Abram sets off with 318 men. What's he going to do? But he, he stalks them, finds out where they're camping, maybe moves with them when they move, sneaks up on them in the middle of the night and invades and, and just, uh, just throws them into a, a confused frenzy and conquers them and releases all the prisoners and loads up all of the booty and uh, hauls it all back. He's got, he's got uh, all the prisoners of war. He's got Lot and his wife. He's got all of the stuff that they had stolen, and he's bringing it back, and it was a successful mission. And on his way back, he's met by uh, the king of uh, Salem, which is probably uh, an ancient word for Jerusalem. It's Salem at the end of J-E-R-U, Salem. And a particular man king by the name of Melchizedek, which has been referred to in the New Testament as being some sort of a, a type of the priesthood of Christ. Melchizedek was king. He was also a high priest. We don't know anything else about him. And just the fact that he's not, uh, we don't have any record of a genealogy of him, then it was a handy kind of a type uh, to liken Christ to uh, without any beginning, uh, no no. Uh, I mean, being the son of God, you know, a dateless past. So he's kind of forever after the order of Melchizedek. But <clears throat> that, that aside, because I digress a little, uh, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, meets him, and he sings this little song for Abram. Blessed be Abram, the God by God. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. He is just elated and impressed with what Abram has done. So Abram stops, and he gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. Now, I've mentioned this before. I find this very interesting because he paid a tithe on somebody else's stuff. But then there's a technicality here, too, because uh, to the winner goes the spoils. And they, they lost the stuff. The king of Sodom came to Gomorrah. They lost it in war. And uh, Abram went and did what they could not do. He defeated them, so he won it. So this stuff is passing from victor to victor. Now it belongs to Abram, even though he's standing there and they're looking at their treasures. And they're like, you recovered our stuff. Uh, rightfully, legally, Abram said, wrong, my stuff. But before it got back in the hands of these people who had no idea, no concept whatsoever, that they ought to tithe, which, which is a good thing to keep in mind, people. As long as you've got somebody else's stuff, if they're not going to tithe, tithe before you get it back. <laughs> you know, you're short 10%. By the way, I paid your tithe. You pay their back tithe too. If you <laughs> 
And the, the king of uh, Sodom is so happy just to see his people recovered. He says, keep the stuff. Just give me the people, and we'll settle up that way. Uh, very interesting story at this point, and, and very logical, courteous thing to do. Everybody's behaving like adults now, I, except Abraham does this very interesting thing. He, he says, I don't want your stuff. Now, there is, an, there is a significance. There's an implication to this that maybe you have not considered as you've read this, but consider the status of Abram right now. He is, he's the big honcho. There is no other king, there, there's nobody else who is higher than Abram because he is the sole conqueror. He has conquered those who conquered everybody else. He's greater than the king of Salem, the king of Gomorrah, uh, the king of Sodom. He's greater than all the four kings of the... He is the top dog right now. And because of that, he literally has the rights to everything that everybody else previously owned because he's the mighty conqueror. And God had promised Abram, I'm going to give you the promised land, and it would have been so easy and so convenient for Abram to say, so this must be the way God's going to give it to me. He's going to make me the conqueror, and I, I, mean, I have the rights to it all now. This is the fulfillment of God's plan. But notice, Abram didn't do that. Somehow, some way, he recognized that was not the way in which the promise was going to be executed. So he gives the stuff back. He says, I'm not going to take this because I'm not going to set myself up as the ultimate conqueror. I'm not going to establish myself as the highest ruling man in the land. I'm not going to take this land by force. Not like this. This is not the way God is going to do it. So that's the significance behind him saying, no, let no man say that this land was given to me by the kings who conceded anything. This land is going to be given to me by God, and it's going to be a different way. It's so easy sometimes and so tempting sometimes for us to try and help God fulfill his promise with other ways, other means. We know what God promised, and we're just going to help him along. But God doesn't need your help. And he's not going to use your ways and your means of getting it. I mean, we, we do this quite often uh, in our lives. We justify maybe taking things that, that don't belong. I mean, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily have belonged to us. But we say, well, this, this is the fulfillment. God wants me to be rich. I mean, how many of you got an extra can of Coke out of the machine? And you justified God just blessed me. <laughs> How many of you got a little extra money out of the ATM? Oh, the blessings of the Lord are flowing today. That, that's not the way God's going to do this. <laughs> and so I'm just trying to make an example here that when God said he's going to bless you, he's not going to use questionable means to make this happen. So Abram said, no, not this way. God will give me the land in a more upright manner we love the shortcuts we love helping God if we can make a promise happen 
a lot quicker and a lot easier, then we're, we're sure all for that. It just makes sense to us. Why work extra hard when it's, it's right here? Here it is. But you can't take God out of the plan. You can't take him out of the equation. And I, I think Abram really continues to amaze us with some of the very mature and responsible decisions he makes, even though we saw last week some of his flaws. But some of the things that he does is just amazing to have this kind of sensibility about himself to say, no, we're not going to do it this way. We're going to do it God's way. And then we're going to find out in just a little bit. The fact is Abram was going to learn that it's from this point, when he, when he could have pursued this avenue of, ah, Canaan land is mine, he learns very soon that God's not going to give it to him and his descendants for another 400 years. So Abram was certainly right in not taking advantage of this point. Now, sermon number three. Faith can be fickle. Abram believed the Lord the scripture says in 15.6, and he, the Lord, credited it to him, Abram, as righteousness. And the King James Version words it just slightly different. And he believed in, in the Lord. It sounds like a, a very small, uh, insignificant difference. But many of the translations say he believed the Lord, but the King James said he believed in in the Lord. And so what difference does it make? Well, it makes a difference because we've got these people who want to be scholars who read about faith and they read about righteousness and they read it with New Testament eyes. And you read this in the Old Testament, New Testament eyes, and when you're talking about faith and you're talking about righteousness, we must be talking about salvation. So Abram believed in the Lord, that sounds real familiar to us, if you believe in the Lord and ask him to forgive you of your sins. So see, that resonates with us. Abraham believed in the Lord, and some people read that, and they, they, they think this has to do with something about Abram being saved. And I, I know it's kind of a stretch, but people like to stretch things. And the... Uh, the King James rendering on this is they should not have thrown that in the Lord because it, it, it gets us off track. Abram believed God. That's the way it's supposed to read. That's the most clear rendering of this. It wasn't about believing in him for salvation. It was about believing him and trusting him that what he said he was going to do. That's all it was. It didn't save him. But when we read this and we read Paul referring back to it, that is that uh, his faith was counted as righteousness, then we start thinking along the lines that what saved Abraham, you might even heard a sermon, what saved Abraham was his, his faith that was accounted to him for righteousness because we think in terms of where's our righteousness come from? Comes from Jesus Christ. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. So we got this, we, we're stuck on this term righteousness and we, we think it's his salvation, but that's the wrong word too. Abram believed God and God counted, credited him for doing the right thing. Not righteousness, but rightness. Rightness would have been the better word. So it clears up this passage. Abram believed God, he trusted him, and God said, I'm going to credit you for doing the right thing. 
the right thing is to trust me. I know I've kind of hammered on that maybe a little longer than you expected, but it's important to understand what it is God was crediting Abram with. He wasn't crediting him with salvation. He was crediting him with doing the right thing. Abraham's faith and the gifted righteousness or the blessing that God credited him with for doing the right thing clearly means that God honors people who do the right thing. Now, I'm going to take this out of the realm of, of salvation by grace for just, just a minute. And don't get worried. We're not saved by works. We all know that. We're saved by faith. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by works. You cannot earn your way into heaven. But we have a problem with this doctrine. It gets skewed too heavily on one side or the other. And if we skew it too heavily on you're saved by grace, then those who make the error on that point forget all about trying to live an upright life because after all, grace covers everything. So they live sloppy Christian life. And those who try to focus on doing the right thing, if they go to the extreme, they're accused of trying to be saved by works and they have, they're, not, they're not comforted by being saved by grace. So the two extremes are to rely on works for grace or to rely so much on grace, uh, works for salvation or to rely so much on grace for salvation that you just completely forget about the works. And there's a balance in between that God wants us to get here. I'm saved by grace. But holiness is still important. Walking in, in a way, in an upright way that pleases the Lord is, is, is an outcropping of our, our salvation. We're supposed to do that. So that's where we're finding the middle road here. Now, for Abram to have this balance, uh, he did the right thing. Uh, and he wasn't even really considered... I hate to use the word Christian because it wasn't applicable in that day, but was he really even a godly man yet? All he was was a man that was learning to believe God, and God said, I like people who do the right thing. Do you realize not everybody in the world who does the right thing is a Christian? Of course you understand that. Do you realize that God appreciates people who do the right thing? It's not enough to get them to heaven. And I'm not trying to sell you that. And God doesn't say, well, because you did the right thing, I think you'll take it to heaven. But God loves people doing the right thing, and he will honor that. And he will not honor people who don't do the right thing. That is the point I think every born-again believer, every person who believes themselves to be a Christian, a child of God, needs to listen to this part. God will not honor you doing the wrong thing. Your Christianity will not cover up you doing the wrong thing. And you're doing the right thing will not cover up for not having Christianity. There's a, there's a combination here, just a perfect combination where we have to find that place and we have to live there. So, for the world, how many of you have just a great neighbor, just the salt of the earth, but you know they're not a Christian? or you have a friend, or you have a coworker, or you have a relative. And for all practical purposes, the only thing wrong with them is that they just are good, good, 
good people, but they just need to confess Jesus Christ your personal Savior. You know anybody like that? God honors people who do good things to a, to a certain extent. And for when I said to the Christians, God does not honor doing the wrong thing, don't think that your grace and your salvation covers you and excuses you for doing the wrong thing. God's going to hold you accountable. If you can't do the right thing, you'll have a lot to answer for. And you can't say, but I confess Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. God's going to hold you accountable. You must be doing the right thing. It's a valid issue. God expects you to make good choices, wise choices, and moral choices. And so I say to conclude this point, if you make good and wise and moral choices, but you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it will help improve your life down here, but it won't get you into heaven. And if you are a born-again Christian and you do not make good and wise and moral choices, it will cost you your salvation. You cannot, you cannot insult God by claiming Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins and not claiming him in obedience to let him be Lord of your life. Well, God at this point reiterates his promise to Abram that he's going to give him the promised land. That from what I can, I can determine, I've looked back on this, this is the third time that God talks to Abram about, I'm going to give you this land. When he called him out of the earth of the Chaldees, I'm going to give you some land. A little later on, I'm going to give you some land. Then he comes to this point, and I'm going to give you some land. <laughs> and they just kind of toss this thing around. But, but uh, this third time they, they approach this, uh, never before do we have any account of when God says, I'm going to give you this land, Abram says, I just can't get my brain around that. I'm not sure I can believe that. Don't know if he did or didn't, but we don't have, by the narrative, any indication that Abram struggled with that. As a matter of fact, he packed up everything and forsook it all and, and left what he had because God said, I want to take you somewhere and give you some land. So he must have trusted him. Now God comes to him, third time, and he says, uh, this, this land, let's talk about a little bit more. I, I want to give you this land. And Abram says at this point, how can I know for sure? It's the first time in all these discussions they've had. He says, how, how can I know? It's an, it's a, this is an unexpected interruption in the flow of this narrative. The difference between these these, these two promises. See, you got the promise where God says to Abram, I'm going to multiply your children like the stars of the sky. And Abram says, I can dig that. And God says, and I'm going to give you this land. And Abram said, I can't dig that. I'm, I'm starting to struggle with that one. Faith is fickle. I, I cannot give you a rational explanation why Abram can stand there and believe God when he doesn't even have a child and God says, I'm going to multiply your seed like the stars of the sky. And Abram says, good, I'm glad, I'm waiting for it, I'm excited. And I'm by some way, I'll give you land. And Abraham says, can you help me with this? 
Doesn't it take the same amount of faith to believe one as the other? But don't you find in your life, sometimes you have the faith that can move mountains for some things that you just will not be deterred. You are, you've got this bulldog tenacity. You believe God. And then other times the simplest things, you just can't get your brain around it. And it takes the same faith to believe both. Why is it, people, if you've ever trusted God for anything, you can't trust God for everything? Why is it you struggle in your faith? Sometimes on the simplest things, I just can't quite trust and believe in this. You've done that. So Abram is struggling. How can I know for sure? Obviously, if God's going to multiply Abram's seed, Abram's, going to have, Abram's first going to have to have a child. If he's going to have the child, we're assuming he's going to have to be there. So it's great likelihood that Abram's going to be around at least to see the beginning of this promise. The second promise is going to be fulfilled generations later. And that's the one that Abram says, uh, how, can I, how can I be sure? Give me something to hold on to. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham was among those, 11th chapter of Hebrews, Abraham was among those that died not having received the promise. Now, obviously he began, he saw the, the miraculous birth of his son, the promised son through which, which this promise would come, but he didn't get the land. He died without having received the promise. Here's what I want to say about this. Delayed promises produces fertile soil for doubt. The quicker that your promise comes to pass, the easier it is to trust God. But when God gives you a promise that it takes a lifetime to see it happen, that's when we begin to fade and to fail and to waver and to question. And I've, I've heard the testimony of people from time to time that it took a lifetime for God to bring about a promise he had given them in their youth I, I remember a man a minister out in California as we listened to his testimony as, as a very young minister God had promised him that he would stand in this foreign country and he would preach the gospel and he didn't actually do that till he's about he was retirement age and it's something that he had begun to wonder, did I make that up? Was that a real promise? Here I am at the end of my ministry, retirement years. And when this happened, he was standing in the middle of this land and it just dawned on him, this was the promise God had given him when he was a young man. And here it was. Delayed promises are fertile soil where doubt grows. What he wants you to do is to hold on. Hold on to the promise. And don't give up. And don't get discouraged. Part four of my three-part sermon. <laughs> the ratified covenant. It'll take me just a couple of minutes. This is just a little addendum. Chapter 15 is where God says 
that he's going to make a covenant with Abraham. Now, he's already said this a number of times. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. But this is where he ratifies it with a sacrifice. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I give you this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites. God says, I'm going to make a covenant. On that day, it's, it, now we're going to ratify it. Now it's going to be official. And Abraham at that point says, well, how, how can I know for sure? And said, well, God, God says, well, let's, let's, just, let's just ratify it right now. <clears throat> and he directed Abram and said, get some animals. <clears throat> get a heifer, get a goat, get a ram, get a dove, get a pigeon, and uh, make a sacrifice. And Abram did that. And he split the goat, and he split the heifer, and he split the ram. The dove and the pigeon, he didn't split those in two. For whatever reason, we don't have any understanding of what the significance of of splitting the others and not splitting the fowl, but he, he got them, and he laid them out before the Lord. And then as uh, if any other fowl or animals came and tried to steal this, he was on guard. This is God's. Get away. This is God's, this is God's offering. It's his sacrifice. And <clears throat> as the sun set, just getting into that, that dusk, Abraham got real tired and he fell asleep. And in his sleep, God gave him some details of this covenant. And God told him in his sleep, he said, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. We know that as going into Egypt, you know, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. They hate Joseph, they sell him into Egyptian bondage. But whenever the famine comes, Joseph has to move his family into Egypt. And then they stay in Egypt, it's a prosperous place, but they stay too long and they change rulers over there and it becomes a despot and they turn them into slaves. And all of this is, is encompassed in this 400 years. You're going to go into a strange country. And he said, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And they did. They loaded up on the riches of Egypt, and they hauled them out of there, all from this little promise. Isn't God good? If he just gives specific details, and 400 years later, it happens. Who says there's no God? You, however, Abram, you're going to go to your ancestors in peace. And you know what that means? You're going to die. <laughs> That's just a polite way of saying you're not going to see this. You don't get it. It's your ancestors are going to get it. You go to your ancestors in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Needed that. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. And, and for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fullest measure, which is a, a, a another thing anyway when people wonder how God of the Old Testament has any justification in slaughtering entire tribes of people and men and women and children and everything else. There's always justification for what God did. These were not just innocent people. These were people that were in sin and rebellion against God and he had warned them and warned them and finally judgment comes. And then when, you know, people always want to make the argument, but innocent children, what do you want God to do? You want him to kill all the adults and leave the infants there when nobody take care of them? What are you going to do? Wouldn't that be more cruel? 
to have babies and children and nobody to take care of them. I mean, we, we know it's tragic, a child dies, but they're immediately in God's presence and there is no harm that comes to them at that point. It's the merciful thing that God has done at that point. So in Abram gets this details of the coming promise and further into the night he gets this vision of this smoking fire pot and his blazing torch he appeared to pass between the pieces of the sacrifices and then God concluded the ceremony by saying to your descendants I'm going to give this land and the experience was evidently enough to satisfy Abram we may not quite grasp the significance of it all but it was for Abram a powerful encounter with God. That's all he needed. He needed an encounter with God. And I might have an encounter with God that I can't impress you with. But if it impresses me, if it does what needs to be done in my faith, it, then it was significant. And you may not understand why that mean anything to you. You just had to be there. I had this encounter with God. And it changed me. And it, and it uh, satisfied me. What I see from this Abram was walking off land he would never personally own. He was doing this for somebody else. He was doing this for future generations. All of this, all of this walking, all of this claiming, all of this building these altars, and he doesn't even get to own it. But you know what? You are doing the same thing. If you are a diligent man or woman of God, there's a lot of things you need to do for those who are going to follow you. You may not get it, but your children may. Your children may not get it, but your grandchildren may. And when I was just a young child, 12, 13 years old, and my father and one other man decided that they wanted to establish a church in our hometown, they had a hard time finding pastors who could keep up with their work ethic because they would work all day at their jobs and they'd pack up their saw and their hammer and they'd go out and they would tear down buildings and reclaim lumber and pull nails out of it and and uh, they would uh, do all kinds of fundraisers like glean cornfields and pick up ears of corn and throw in the back of pickup and go down after a whole day's labor go down and cash it in for about $20 and put it in the building fund every uh, night of the week except Wednesday night which was church night Monday night Tuesday night Thursday night Friday night was work night I had the wonderful privilege as a 13 year old being a part of every one of those Saturday every Saturday was work day we got little league everybody no everybody else had little league I had work day at the church because those two men persevered and they gave of themselves until there is a church established in that town today out of which I don't know how many ministers have come. I'm a minister. One of my closest friends that I grew up with has his Assembly of God credentials and license. He pastored a church. He's now working in a, a had worked in admissions at one of our Christian colleges down there, but still has his, has his credentials. Uh, another young man that I grew up with is now a chaplain uh, in the ministry at Houston Methodist Hospital. 
other young men who have come up, another one come out that church is pastoring in Austin, Texas. Another young girl who's a, a daughter of one of my friends, uh, she and her husband are pastors. Uh, my son, a pastor. And th- 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 I can't go through all of them. I'm just telling you, I can't, I can't tell you how many ministers have come out because men that packed up their tools and sacrificed their life and invested in the future made something available for another generation. And what we're doing for our church, whenever, whenever you're, you're teaching a Sunday school class, it doesn't look like, who, who cares? Who's coming? You don't know what you're doing for future generations. And even this little remodel that we're going through, where you know, it's taking a, its toll on my body, but I'm doing it for a future generation. Doing it for others. We're investing in tomorrow. Because if somebody... Why is West Side here today? Because back in the late 1940s, somebody started a church. Could they have ever known at that time what they were planting for future generations? Bow your heads.